that's where I'm extremely excited to explore a residential component of gravity, whether it's dormitory for entrepreneurs in your co-living spaces or artists or entrepreneur or technologists and residents. Now we can open the door to the nation or the world and say, if you're a professor of art, spend your sabbatical here. If you're a startup, come live here. And I don't think anyone else in the nation or the world is doing that. And that is really exciting. Dr. Alex Bandar is an engineer by training and an entrepreneur by accident. After having worked 10 years as a computational metallurgist with clients from GE to Apple to Honda, he founded the Columbus Idea Foundry, which TechCrunch called the world's largest makerspace. With hundreds of members and dozens of small businesses, solar nourership, and startups, the Idea Foundry is one of the most active makerspaces on the planet and has won numerous international awards in the maker movement arena. From Dayton to Dubai, Dr. Bandar teaches, speaks, and consults regularly about this exciting new culture of innovation neighborhoods and couldn't be prouder that the Idea Foundry has recently joined the Gravity family. We are here in person, which is really great. I haven't been doing that many of these podcasts in person since the pandemic, but I thought it would be great to get together with Alex Bandar as our guest today. And, you know, knowing just how much you and I are committed to this neighborhood and, and share vision and passion for our work. I thought, let's get together and, and record this. And, and I'm, I'm excited to have you here and, and not just be with you in person, but to hear your story. 100% agreed. Couldn't be more grateful to get together in person again. I, I see, is this also a, a remnant of the your beard I'm stroking for people who can't see? Um... Yeah, no, the beard kind of comes in the winter and, and goes <laughs> and it's, it's, it's on its way out uh, here at this point. But yeah, just kind of, I like not shaving. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So let's start at the beginning. As we do on the podcast, I really want to hear the full journey. I know many of our listeners probably know you, but I don't know that they know your entire story. So tell me a little bit about childhood. We have your father here actually in person with us today. So this is going to be fun and, and interesting, but I want to hear about who you were as a child, the environment that you grew up in, anything that stands out about your parents, your family, et cetera. Yeah, no. Uh, and at the beginning, when you mentioned that we were going to talk about this, I joked, uh, a bald man has a lot of face to blush. And for those who are just listening, <laughs> I, I shave my head because I have to, not because I'm going bald. And yeah, you know, couldn't be more proud to brag about the, the the family life I had, which I think can directly show the, the arc of the canon and the tra trajectory was set way back there for what it's grown into to me and the Idea Foundry. Yeah, no, grew up in a suburb of Boston, Massachusetts. Dad is Arabic, came to this country in the 50s to study engineering. And like myself, he's an engineer as well. And I think he got a little bored being an engineer and actually bought a restaurant as a, a young gentleman working in Boston. So I grew up in the restaurant and hospitality industry and worked pretty much every position except behind the line. So I never learned to cook but I could valet park, I could wash dishes, I could sweep the floor, eventually worked waiting tables behind the bar. And that, to leap forward a little bit, and we'll fill in the intervening years, that has informed my perception of how you properly run a makerspace. And mm -hmm. that is, instead of an intimidating place with high-tech and potentially hazardous tools, 
you run it like a machine shop with a maitre d so you make people feel warm and welcome it's about hospitality it's about community it's about fun and that's the the very quick extrapolation of how uh, a kid who grew up in his dad's restaurant eventually built the the largest makerspace in the world. <laughs> yeah, and, and we'll jump around a bit, but it, it is fun to think of. I mean, it is also kind of part of the reason why I love, you know, following the full life journey is because those kind of early jobs, I know for me especially, you know, sometimes, you know, I think about it with my own kids, it's like you know, should they be working, you know, as children and, and as teenagers and, you know, as they get older, you know, what, what, what's the right thing to do? Is it to let them live and, and be kids and just enjoy life while they can before they have to start working or should they get some experience? And generally what I found is that experience isn't as much about what you're doing in the field that you're doing it in, but it's just kind of real life skills that you can apply and sometimes you are really pleasantly surprised at how applicable they are in something totally unrelated later in life. A hundred percent. As you mentioned, there's there's always going to be expertise, experience, talent, skill, but that's different, I think, than dealing with a potentially unhappy customer, um, trying to get a, a coworker to resolve a, an argument they have with another coworker. Things that really, I think, do transcend industry and they're much more about personal management interpersonal management and sure you get some of that from play from sports from board games from video games but i think it doesn't have the same depth or gravity as when work is on the line and and that you know i, I remember i learned the phrase crisis management from dad when he said wow running a restaurant really is crisis management mm. that i i think <laughs> for better or for worse Almost every business is crisis management. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, managing whatever's coming at you and figuring out how to navigate it and hopefully thrive, you know, in it is a life skill. And it's a skill for sure that's necessary in business. Let's back up a little bit. Tell me a little bit more about like who you were as a kid, you know, in, in hindsight, but, you know, what was the kind of like embodied experience of kind of your persona? I mean, I, I hear this kind of, you know, work ethic piece that comes, but who else were you? What were you into? Tell me more. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And it's funny, if you've listened to the last few minutes of what I've just said, you'd have thought that I loved working in the restaurant. I loved washing dishes. Actually, uh, I was quite shy, quite introverted, quite bookish. Oldest of three kids, so along that totem, you know, typically the, the older student is the responsible student um, and was going to a, a pretty aggressive and academic prep school, which set a bar for performance there too. But I really enjoyed uh, reading science fiction. I really enjoyed role-playing games, board games. And so I was a little bit frustrated that we weren't living in a world where robots and jetpacks and flying cars were right outside the window. And so I was inspired by science fiction books and movies and thought I'd like to live in that world. And I really wanted to be one of those people who helped usher that world in. And I thought the only way to do that was, <laughs> it's embarrassing how naive I was, uh, even having dad as an engineer, I didn't know that an engineer, if you just go to school and get an engineering degree, there are companies that will hire you and employ you for the career, for the skill that you have, mechanical, electrical, computer programming. I having really, because I never saw dad's engineering career. He'd already had the restaurant by the time I was born. 
I'd only seen the entrepreneurial side of dad and the, the sales and the hospitality and the management and the hustling. So I thought if I wanted to bring a new product into the world, a jetpack, a flying car, I had to learn how to design it. I had to start a company to build it. Uh, and I had to sell it. So it was engineering and innovation and entrepreneurship and sales and marketing and business and all of that wrapped in one. So naive. And, but really that was my, my bar for performance. And while I was earnestly trying to, you know, read books about that and tinker and have fun, I'm getting roped into being the bar back, being the valet parker. So there was for sure a little bit of resentment there. And to your point about, do you raise kids to let them be themselves or do you impose upon them some, some skill or some experience they will for sure be grateful for 20 years from now? Mm-hmm. And you just have thick enough skin to deal with that teenage resentment for, for however long it is. I think there's probably a way to do both, but I'm, I don't know what that is yet. So, so I'm grateful. Uh, I think I heard a phrase once, man, my dad was so dumb, but the older I get, the smarter he is. Oh, yeah. And so uh, a lot of that uh, has applied. Oh yeah. That, that, that actually just came up on a, an episode I recorded earlier where we talked about kind of how we see things differently, our parents included, as we start to experience them ourselves, being a parent which I know you are, you know, it, it definitely shifts your perspective quite a bit. So I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea that you wanted to create this world that you wanted to live in. You wanted to be a part of this creation coming from the, the fantasy, you know, coming from the sci-fi, coming from, you know, kind of what might to be to most kids just like fun or would be, you know, entertainment, Right, you were actually thinking about how you wanted to live in this world and be a part of creating it, which you know this is maybe a, a whole nother conversation and and I actually want to have this conversation with you maybe off the air but but you know I'm becoming incredibly fascinated with the metaverse and you know this this new web three tech that's coming our way, and it now actually feels like that world is really getting created. And so, you know, what a, what a, I'm wondering kind of how you think about that now as you think back on, on, on a childhood with this spark of insight that you might actually want to be creating it, you know? And I don't know if that's exactly where you're headed, but I just, the, the idea that we can create the world we want to live in is pretty powerful. Yeah. No, uh, this actually resonates very much with the, the kind of later teenage and early 20s of my life where just as I was applying to college and I, I knew I wanted to be some kind of scientist and engineer, didn't quite know what. I had read an article in Discover Magazine, uh, 1990, about virtual reality. And I was immediately, it was the first time I'd ever read an article and finished it and read it again. And it was the, the main article of the magazine that month. And I was enormously enchanted that you could move around in, uh, you could fly, you could create this, this alternate universe. And, and it wasn't just video games or alternate reality, nothing wrong with either of those, but you could do things that you can't do in reality. For example, if you wanted to explore chemistry, how chemicals bond is actually geometry. So it's the, the atoms fall into the nooks and crevices of other atoms. And, and there's certainly some bonding there too. But some of these VR people were creating models where you could literally, literally, literally virtually hold a molecule in one hand and a molecule in the other 
And based on the physics of how those molecules might bond, you could feel resistance in gloves that have motors in them and try to find what fits. Or you could even do things like practice surgery through someone's skull. So if you have to drill through someone's skull, you have a, a bone, uh, a, a saw with a rotating tip, and the trick is to go through the skull and stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course, there's a little pressure, and then you, you break through. So you could practice with something. They built this device called the Phantom Pen, which was, again, a, a kind of pen or pretend scalpel on servos and motors that could simulate the, the vibration and the pressure of going through a bone and then suddenly release. So it, it was the ultimate combination of imagination technology that empowered or enabled other technologies. And I thought the people who are making the tools for the other designers, that's where it's at. Mm-hmm. And often people get a bad rap for trying something new, trying something different, and it's not perfect the first time. And how many times has someone ever made something perfect the first time? And I, I really enjoy the movie Moneyball with, mm-hmm. with Brad Pitt mm-hmm. about applying statistics to baseball. There's a line at the end by the, the owner of the Red Sox, again, a Boston call-out. Mm-hmm. So the, the first through the wall always gets bloodied, always. So, mm-hmm. And there is this technology adoption curve. There's, there's a, another name for it, but essentially... Let's use the example of 3D printers. We could also say VR and metaverse. This technology comes on the scene. Everyone thinks it's amazing. People's expectations are sky high. Then they try it out. It doesn't meet their potentially unrealizable expectations. Now, your view of this technology is worse than neutral. It was Mm -hmm. worse than before. Then if the people who are pushing this tech or this new thing can keep going, grind away another year, another five years, another decade, another couple decades... They bring it up to a place where the, the user experience is still maybe below what that ultimate high was, but it's way above that, that negative expectation. And I think we've had a couple of iterations of VR, Google Glass, uh, that, that wasn't quite there. So as, as bad a rap sometimes as some innovators might have, I do hold out hope for the metaverse. I yeah. think there's something very interesting there. Yeah, th- this is you're an interesting interview because I'm going to have a hard time like following the 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 traditional path because I'm like I want to talk about that right now. So I'm going to jump around, but you know, it, it's that that point alone is very interesting. You know, the kind of experience of and and whether it's tech or just an entrepreneur or maybe it applies to anything new. You know, I'm I'm learning to play guitar and. I've tried to play, learn to play multiple times, and this time I'm actually like getting better. And and it's a funny thing, like you know, the reason I've stopped in the past is because I've hit that wall, right? And I'm like, I'm I'm not good at this. You start, you know, kind of telling stories like I don't have talent or I'm not right, and that can happen in in any you know kind of part of life, but definitely true in business and and probably even more so in tech. And you know, you you at the foundry are seeing a lot of this. You know, people coming, starting things. You know, trying to create things, make things. I mean, you must see the kind of walls being run into all the time. So I'm, I'm kind of curious. You know, what your thoughts are on on the people that actually do persevere. And sometimes it does take decades. I just actually had a chance to spend some time with Rick Doblin. And do you know Rick? So Rick, Rick's the founder of MAPS, which is the leader in psychedelic assisted therapy. And they and he has been at this since the 60s. And they're like stage three trials. Like they're actually going to get it 
legalized this time. But but I just was so moved by the commitment and the dedication and and you know the the grind to get it to a point. So I'm just kind of curious to hear, you know, you speak a little bit more on that point. Yeah, for sure. So with respect to people who persevere, who have the grit to bring something innovative and potentially exciting, but again, raises eyebrows from people who think, really, that? Uh, you think you can do And people, again, often sometimes have some pushback against something just new and strange and different. And I think for sure there is something to be said about what I've heard Nancy Kramer call divine ignorance. So you just don't know how hard something is. Mm. So you jump in. If you had known 10 years from now <laughs> what it would take, that might be enough to dissuade you from, no, no, I'm going to keep my career. I'm going to oh, do for this. Sure, yeah. So I think <laughs> some some funny mix of a little bit of ignorance, a little bit of obstinacy, a huge dose of optimism, and then either some talent and or a community of talented people. And, and that's really what we try to push at the Foundry. And uh, I used to say, a little sidebar here, the product of a makerspace is access to tools and the know-how to use them. I think I'm wrong about that. And it's because most of the people who pay the monthly fees at the Idea Foundry don't actually use the tools. So it took me a long time to figure out, why are you here? Mm -hmm. Why do you keep paying? And I realized it is that access to a community of entrepreneurs, technologists, creatives, movers and shakers. And it's almost a social club for those folks. So really, the product I say we offer is optimism. Mm. That you can learn a new skill, you can make that art project, you can start a, a company selling a product that allows you to quit your day job, live the life you want. And, and if you ask yourself, who are the kinds of people who start businesses, who are entrepreneurs, or who, who make something new, I think a common trait is optimism. I don't think you can be an entrepreneur or a maker and not be optimistic. And who doesn't want to hang out with a bunch of people who, who don't just feel that way, but actually show up and, and make things? With respect to who succeeds, for sure, I think there you have to iterate. You've got to find that product market fit. You've got to find what you like to do. And I, I think I'm still learning this on my own journey. Because if, if I pull off any book on the shelf these days about how to start a, uh, a business or a startup, it might be a snapshot of what works right now. And it might be a little different than what worked 20 years ago and 20 years before that. So, so I hesitate to say what's common among all the people. But I do think some mix of that, like I say, a little ignorance, a lot of obstinacy, a lot of optimism, and a, and a fun group of people to help you do that. Yeah, so so let, let's kind of, I want to follow this thread a little bit, but I want to go back to you kind of as a young adult or even, you know, as far back as you want to go. You know, I, I'm hearing this kind of intrigue with engineering, with science, with kind of creating things. And I'm wondering, like, it, it's funny because I'm interested in all of that, and especially the technology, but mostly that's as an adult. When I was a kid and even into high school and college, I started to get interested in some things, psychology, architecture, city planning, things that like make sense, you know, that I'm doing what I'm doing. But even then, I wasn't really thinking that much about kind of work or what I wanted to do or who I was. I was honestly like just kind of, you know, day by day, friends, you know, girls, sports, whatever, right? music, you know, I was just having a good time as a kid. And and I'm wondering like what tell me more about like what you were like 
and and how these parts of you that had real interest in you know the work that you do now in in some form were they just kind of ideas were they things you were really leaning into were you were you, I guess what I'm getting at is like how much of yourself today were you then and living in in, in alignment with that these are really interesting questions, Brett. And and it is funny because I am a very different person in many respects. Of course, the same person in most, but like I said, you know, very introverted, very shy. The kinds of science fiction books I was reading were the types that were what I call hard science fiction. So Arthur C. Clarke, where where it's really 99% science and and engineering. And one interesting assumption about how, how the world is different. So it really idolized people who weren't necessarily Star Wars magic. It was, here's a problem, how do we solve it? And, and that really did intrigue me because that did make me feel like I could potentially be part of this world. If I did study the right skills, have the right mindset and work ethic, it was possible to create something new that I thought was fun and cool and that could potentially benefit other people, whether you know a, a positive life benefit or just fun. And both of those are important. But you know, very academic, like I said, a preparatory school. When I went to college, I, I was actually, the preparatory school I went to was very liberal arts oriented. So a lot of language, a lot of writing, not a lot of science, uh, no engineering. And so I told myself I would apply to schools both liberal arts schools and engineering or technical schools, and whichever one was better, and how you define better, I hadn't yet decided, I would go to that one and I would pursue that career. And then when I retired, I'd do the other thing. So if I got into a great liberal arts school, I'd be a science fiction writer. And then when I retired, I would do tinkering. (laughs) Or if I got into a great engineering school, I'd do that and then retire and write. And it occurred to me, you know, that it might might be easier to be an engineer and then retire as a creative writer, then to suddenly try to become a technician, you know, uh, later in life. Who knows? And nothing is easy. People who know me know I like to say, nothing is easy except getting into trouble. Everything else is hard, but um, <laughs> so creative writing hard, engineering hard. But I did wind up going to a Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI, upstate New York, fantastic engineering school. Ninety-five percent guys, five percent women, and I was still so shy and awkward that that wasn't a problem for me. <laughs> I was very interested in my studies, and but was very hesitant to commit to a particular discipline. I didn't know, did I want mechanical? Did I want electrical? And I, I, I fell into something called materials, science, and engineering. And this is essentially the study of and design of different materials, metals, glasses, ceramics, polymers, electronics, and, and natural uh, materials, and then composites. So... I thought, this is interesting. Like it, To design a flying car is probably technically feasible, and we just have to get the right components together. There's nothing really magic about it. Design a faster computer, you need more conductive copper, you need smaller chips. The real challenge was coming up with new materials or new processes that could serve as another color on the palette that all the other artists or disciplines are painting with. And I thought that would be really innovative and really exciting. And again, shows how naive that, that divine ignorance, maybe I'll invent a new metal or a new plastic. That's very hard to do. But it did give me an insight to what I would consider the substrate on which almost everything else is done. And I, I did a healthy dose of computer programming too and, and some electrical. So have a little bit of that coding and, and mechatronic world too. So 
went into what we call MATSCI and got my degree in materials science and engineering. It's a very strange title of a degree because it has science, which is a noun, and engineering, which is a gerund. So I, I joke, I'm a, I'm a material scientist and engineering. And then only in the last semester did I have a class that came close to integrating this patchwork of, of skills I'd taken. And not to get too technical, but it felt like all the things I had studied were disjointed. Okay, so I, I studied something about manufacturing. I studied something about metals processing, uh, software development. And then there was one class that kind of tied it together and showed how they all fit. And I was fascinated to think that it's possible, if you really understand this stuff, to, to, to draw a thread all the way from the periodic table to a part in your hand. And that includes how you make the material, how you process it, how you form it, and then ultimately how you package it, how you ship it, how you sell it. And so I got really interested in computer modeling of these physics, of these processes. And so I wrote software that simulated factories. So if you make an automotive, maritime, consumer, electronic product, you have a $100 million factory, you've got 10 processes to form the metal or the part into the final shape. You can actually simulate all that in a computer, and if you get the physics right, then you can virtually test that product in the computer, and if you like the results, you build the factory and you make your product. And that really tickled every little itch that needed scratch. And I wound up working for a company here in, well, went to grad school, Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, and got my master's and PhD in the same studies. And then when I was graduating, it's such a narrow degree, computational metallurgy, that there were four cities on the planet that might have hired me. And they were uh, Tokyo, it would have been a professor position, academic position at Waseda University, or Washington, D.C., NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, which sets the bar for a lot of industry, and or a professor position at Columbus, uh, Mississippi, university there, or a, a little company that spun out of Battelle here in Columbus, Ohio. And Tokyo was too far, D.C. was too hot, traffic and crowded. My brother lived in D.C., Mississippi was a little too rural for this Yankee, and Columbus, Ohio was the, the porridge just right. So mm. came here, worked in that industry for 10 years, and I'll, I'll pause to ask a question, but mm -hmm. during that period where I was working here in Columbus, my sister was working at the largest international artists and writers residency in the world in Vermont. She was the sculpture technician. And so if you were a, an artist or a writer, you'd live there for a month, if you were a sculptor, you'd learn to paint. If you're a painter, you'd learn to write. If you're a writer, you'd learn to photo uh, take uh, photographs. And it was the most dynamic and interesting place I'd ever been. And the industry that I had found myself in was all virtual. I was just writing software for the manufacturing industry. And here I'm with 30 artists every month who actually make things with their hands. And it was also an enormously vibrant community of people sharing ideas, tips and tricks. And then after they're done working, beer and barbecue around the campfire. And this was very different than my cubicle engineering world. And I thought, I want this. And I also want a geeky component, 3D design, 3D printing, virtual reality. And so that was when I started dipping my toes in, in the idea foundry. Yeah, great. So it's interesting because, you know, part of the reason I was asking earlier about, you know, kind of who you were and because and, and, I was in my mind starting to kind of you know, not just be curious, but probably even form an opinion or a story about what maybe that looked like. 
And, you know, even as I sit here and listen to you talk, you know, and, and it's clear there's a deep knowledge. I mean, you don't go on to get a master's and PhD without deep knowledge, very specific knowledge in your case. And it's clear that you could talk about it for, you know, ever, right? I mean, there's, there's a ton of depth of this, this very specific subject. And, and to me, that correlates to like very academic right? That like, you know, you've, you've got to be really, you know, literally deep into your academic studies to gain that knowledge. And, you know, I think generally speaking, historically, you know, science and, and getting into, you know, academia, like it, it kind of puts people maybe, I don't know, a, a box. There's some sort of, you know, kind of personality profile that probably goes with that individual, that kind of person that their mind works that way, that they're, you know, living that way. And, 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 you know, we've talked a little bit about this as it pertains to your tattoo, but, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of struck by this, um, seeing this, this, you know, experience that your sister's having, the environment she's in and being around the artist and, and, you know, kind of, you know, in community and, and what sounds like, you know, people that are, that are having fun, right. You know, tell me about kind of how you find this part of you that says like, I want that because I, because I think that like, that box or that, you know, profile that I've got in my mind, either whether they want it or not, might not see themselves that way. And it sounds like you saw yourself a different way, that, that you wanted to live this kind of life and not that kind of life because it must have felt like it was alive to you or some um, other part of you that you wanted to explore. Can you maybe you know I- explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, but I think that's that's pretty insightful. And if I if I do ask myself, I think the thing that really I might have jumped ahead a couple generations of potential technology. Elon Musk, notwithstanding, it's a lot to say. You know what? I'm going to make the company that makes a flying car, or I'm going to really bring some technology revolution to the world. So I think maybe my ambitions had been set a little high with the science fiction books I was inspired by. But now watching artists actually just have an image and an hour or a day or a week or a month later, they've realized it. They're holding it. That was something I was envious of and and deeply respectful of and represented, I think, that urge to actually create and see what you've done a computer program is still a real thing, but there's no denying there's something to hefting, you know, something you've made in your hand or feeling the ring of hammer on metal or the buzz of a, of a mill against steel as you're milling it down. There's something really earthy, really real about that. Mm-hmm. And so ironically, if I had found myself in a career where I was making real stuff, if I was in the mechanical engineering industry where we're making widgets or automotive, we're making cars, that might actually have satisfied that need for me to feel and touch what I had contributed to. But having found an industry that was really just virtual, virtually designing these uh, manufacturing processes, left a giant void and vacuum. And where I'm grateful, having fallen into the makerspace business, being inspired by my sister's art community, a funny bridge between the corporate innovators. So there are large companies like Honda, like uh, AEP, you know, pick your large Columbus engineering firm that operate at a certain level of technical talent. And you've got to make safe products. You've got to make them effectively. You've got to make them cost effectively and reliably. 
So there's a, a threshold level of talent that has to be met. And I think my engineering background allows me to address that, but also have had this interesting introduction to a much more creative and lively and, and, and fun world. And my wife likes to say, you know, fun is fun. It's okay to have fun. And she really, I think, helped show me that as as maybe uh, hypomanic and type A and, and go, 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 I was. She's like, you, you can live a little. And so that rather late in life introduction to, oh, I can design my life the way I want to rather than have to be on a railroad track. And that was that was inspiring. Brief aside, I teach entrepreneurship at the Wellington School. And I have a couple of slides. If you want to start a career, you can take your one skill and lean into that as heavily as you like and you can have an amazing life. And my slide for that is a railroad track going off to the horizon. See how far you can go. If you want to be an entrepreneur, I have a picture of a four-wheeler that's off the track and on the ground. You can go anywhere you like. And I think that was also a, a late-in-life discovery that um, you can leave the relative comfort, again, nothing is easy, of a, of a salary of benefits of a relatively lifelong career, especially if it's built on several decades of education to get there. But you can be captain of your ship, hence the Odysseus mm-hmm. on my arm, and and plot your course. And I, I wish more young people or older people feel equally empowered. Yeah, and and this is maybe also a side, but since you know I mentioned it, you mentioned it. You know your tattoo, which I love, and and I love it for a lot of reasons. But one, and, and you know, warming up to getting my own, which has been a whole journey by itself. But I I loved you know you, you shared with me a little bit about why your tattoo, and and I'd like you to share with the audience a little bit. You know, kind of what the thinking was behind. The tattoo, not just what it is, but why you got it. Yeah, yeah. This is funny. So we'll we'll go all the way around the world here. I mentioned I went to a very liberal art preparatory school. So the Greek myths figured prominently in my in my childhood. And coincidentally, I fell into metallurgy and and Hephaestus is the Greek god of the forge. And there's a beautiful Renaissance painting of Hephaestus in his forge with his apprentices and the god of uh, messengers, Hermes is looking at him and he's delivering some bad news. And Hephaestus has this huge, terrible expression on his face. And it's that his wife, Aphrodite, is sleeping with Ares, god of war. And so there, the message is like, don't work so hard for my takeaway. Don't work so hard, your life falls apart. So, you know, that that's we'll put a pin in that. But then we have Odysseus, who, you know, great wanderer, when he was traveling across the, the seas with the sirens. And of course, the sirens are these, you know, watery vixens in the ocean who lure sailors to their death by singing their siren song. He had his, his rowers, his crew, fill their ears with wax. And he had them tie him to the mast so that he could hear the siren song, but he was in, incapable of actually jumping off and plunging and drowning. So here, I think even, even the gods have trouble keeping their lives together. But a clever person, if you recognize your own weaknesses, if you uh, can muster your own community of people who care for you, you can probably do amazing things safely in an interesting way that others can't. So that's, uh, that's my own kind of personal plot your life. You can do amazing things. Be careful and be creative. And my wife bought this for me, Mike Moses Cauldron Tattoo. All right. Yeah. And I remember also, you know, you sharing and and maybe, you know, why I was thinking about this earlier, that, you know, if you were going to be in the world, the community that you were a part of, where you had people that were individuals that were 
unique that were really kind of up to living and creating in a way that was not the norm that to some extent you wanted to kind of like really, you know, stamp yourself, you know, ink yourself, you know, that you were one of them. And that in some way that, you know, having a sleeve tattoo was reflective of that commitment to this kind of a life, which I also really get. And and I don't know, maybe you could just talk a little bit about that, you know, not just to the tattoo, but, you know, the idea in general of kind of, you know, putting your your you know money where your mouth is or really committing to a way of being you know fully sure you know i think was it i'm going to quote this line from hunfer at october i don't know if it's true or not but cortez conquistador burned his ships so that his his crew were then very motivated to to stay on land so by burning your ship i know kevin mack of the previously columbus web group and now i think he's at he, rove at yeah. rove yeah, yeah also has a whole host of tattoos that he specifically said, look, this is not corporate behavior. Now it's increasingly accepted, mm-hmm. but it is a, effectively a way of burning your ship and saying, okay, I'm cutting off that avenue of, of career success. I'm wholly reliant on my own self now or that tribe of people who get it, who can also respect the technical talent and whatever idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic, eccentric quirks you might have. Well, what, what's ironic is, you know, as you said, you know, it's probably a lot more acceptable now. I would go a step further. I mean, depending on the kind of company you want to work, I mean, people are actually looking for people that have that kind of. It's not just about what they look like, but it, it there's, you know, sometimes then also a deep creative side or a you know unique thinker or you know somebody like Kevin who's working in a in a you know venture capital backed you know startup i mean he's he's really in the modern day corporate world now and and they're like cool who cares come on over right cuz you know if anything maybe we know you because you're creative because you're an individual because you're unique i i hope that becomes more the norm wouldn't that be kind of a cool world to live in but I don't know, maybe um, the fact that people just don't care, you know, as much about what kind of impact it has. They're just committed to something is what's maybe, you know, most important. Yeah, pick something you stand for and and be proud about it. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the Idea Foundry. You know, you you told the backstory and and you, you know, uh, I I want I want you to tell the Idea Foundry story now. Tell me, you know, and the audience, you know, exactly how this thing, you know, happens. Sure, sure. So maybe in in 2 minutes in in 2006, I visited so I came to Columbus 2005 for work. 2006, visited my sister's art space up in Vermont, deeply enamored of that community, wanted to be part of the artistic community in Columbus, and found the uh, the Milo Arts community in Milo Grogan. So I rented a studio there for a couple of years, and really, I would spend weekends there. I would spend uh, the weekdays at my house, have the day job, and then weekends I would crash at the art space. And I was interested in building artistic technical projects. So on YouTube, I bought a silk flower from Joanne Fabrics and I put this nitinol shape memory alloy wire that contracts when you heat it up. Most metals expand, this contracts, so it acts like a muscle. The petals of the flower open up and it looks beautiful. So I wanted to make some kind of interesting kinetic sculpture and that's why I had the space to encourage me to be immersed in that community, hopnob and, and connect with other creatives and thought about starting a community workshop there. That wasn't quite the right space to do it. 
So in 2008, I rented a, a commercial garage, found a space on Craigslist for 1100 bucks for a 2,400 square foot space, bought a few old used woodworking tools on Craigslist, advertised in the platonic section of Craigslist and in the artist section of Craigslist. If you want to meet other makers, artists, techies, come here, made a simple WordPress website. And I thought, who wouldn't want to use woodworking tools? It was one of my favorite classes in, in school uh, and pay a, a low monthly fee to, to be part of a uh, community of makers. Turns out no one did. Uh, <laughs> no one joined to pay. I had a lot of interest in volunteers, curious onlookers, the product itself, the experience of going into that little dusty warehouse, which I loved, was terrible. I had people who were experienced woodworkers and they said, look, man, a 20-minute woodworking job will take me three hours here because mm-hmm. i got to pull this out, i got to plug this in, i got to clean this off. And I like to say, friends tell you what you want to hear. Good friends tell you what you don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. And Annalise Corbin of uh, the Past Foundation, a great STEM nonprofit in town, she came through and she also said, I thought maybe I could teach STEM, could teach mm-hmm. kids. She's like, there's no way in heck you can bring kids here. There's a milk mm-hmm. crate of broken glass literally right next to the front door. So it was interesting where my vision of what was a great creative clubhouse didn't mesh with what people were willing to pay for or how I could get students to learn. But there were a couple dozen folks who volunteered to just hang out, help clean up, help fix tools, teach a few classes. Once we met Adlai Stein, who was a blacksmith, and he brought his blacksmithing equipment in. And once we brought some welding equipment in, these were resources that were harder to put in a person's garage. So if you were a woodworker, you can, you can put a woodworking setup in your garage in Ohio. There's land here that you don't have in Boston or San Francisco. But it's still hard to have welding tanks, to have a blacksmithing forge. That started growing interest. And eventually, it wasn't paying for itself. I was using my day job salary. I still had the day job. So I was backfilling any rent or utilities or trash, internet, security, you know, all the all the things I never budgeted for, I was paying for each month. And after a couple of years, was having a hell of a lot of fun meeting a whole lot of artists and creatives, was participating in things like the Independent Arts Fest downtown, but it wasn't sustainable. And I had to decide, do we either close the doors to the public and contract to the three or four people I had met who I might be willing to split fees with, and we have effectively a small private co-op where three or four of us have an interesting workshop. Or do we go big? Do we rent a larger space where I could rent out, I could build out 10 or 20 studios, rent those for a couple hundred bucks a month. That would cover the rent. The few memberships that I could get people to pay for would cover the utilities. That might be a viable model for at least uh, revenue neutral. So I wasn't bleeding. So it was a go big or go home moment and found a great space also in Milo Grogan 10,000 square foot um, warehouse. And at this point, if no one paid any of the dues at the old small location, I could still absorb all of the business fees. Once I was signing a much larger lease, I told folks, hey, this is bigger than me now. You got to pony up. Mm. Who's with me? And thankfully, people started paying. The product started turning into something we can offer public classes to. Started learning how to market on, on Facebook and other platforms. And uh, we were just about breaking even at that 10,000 square foot space when the unit in the same complex next to us came available, another 10,000 square feet. And the landlord, uh, who was a nice guy, Dave Wilson, he said, hey, you want this space? 
And if you've ever played the game Risk, where you make a big land grab and you've got one little army guy in every territory and you're very <laughs> exposed, it felt like that two or three or four times because mm-hmm. just as we were about to cash flow, went big again, rented that next space. After another year, we're just about to cash flow. The space next to us came available again and uh, did the same thing. So now we have this you know, 25,000 square foot space that's kind of covering its bills. We have a something of a growth plan in mind for memberships and classes. and But it was very hard to manage both that and my day job. And at the time, Mr. Jim Sweeney from the, at the time, Franklin Development Association came knocking on the door and said, hey, we love your brand of mischief. We have this beautiful building in downtown Franklin. Come, come check it out. And I saw the building, loved it, loved the neighborhood. And he wanted to invite us to relocate. And I said, no, thank you. Because I knew had talked to the Columbus Foundation also, said, how quickly do you think this neighborhood will turn around? Do you mm-hmm. think it's you know 20 years? Do you think it's 10 years? Mm-hmm. And Doug Kreidler shook his head, no, no, three years. Three mm-hmm. years, you'll see a big difference. So we needed to find a way to buy the building in order to be captains of our ship so that we really weren't at the mercy of increasing market rate. And so thankfully, to Jim's credit, I did not have a million dollars to buy the building. I didn't have any kind of financing. If I go to a bank and say, hey, I teach kids how to weld, hold my hand out. They're they're not going to put a check in it. So it took a very creative plan. And uh, thankfully, on our financial advisory board, we had Mr. Christopher Celeste and Nancy Kramer. And they said, they tried to help us raise funds. It was a strange ask because we're not a 501c3. Mm -hmm. So it's a funny, uh, funny business deal. They said, hey, you know what? We have an idea. How about about we just help you? Mm -hmm. And so that was uh, really what launched us, allowed us to, to come to Franklinton, have the building, allowed me to quit the day job and jump full-time into growing this delightful, chaotic business. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun since. Yeah, let me, let me just hop in there and we'll talk a little bit more about kind of the foundry. But one of the things that I think, you know, you just shared towards kind of the end of that story, there's a lot there. I mean, I'm certainly struck again by kind of the 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 risk the you know keep kind of throwing it back out there the you know perseverance the you know the learning you know the the having good friends that'll tell you the truth you know there's there's a lot of really great lessons in there in this journey cuz you know i think some people might see you today and you know know of you alex bandar idea foundry this gem in columbus all this you know great stuff that that's true and has happened out of the building and and because of of you but they don't know that whole story right they don't know if they're just getting started with their idea their thing and 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 you know what it takes and and the risk you have to take and the people you need to surround yourself by so there's there's a lot there which i think is wonderful and really important for people to know and then i'm also really struck by this thing which is really important to me which is the jim sweeney's of the world and the people that get that this isn't 20 years this is 3 years the people that are willing to say you know the nancy and christophers of the world that are willing to say we'll do it you know, there's there's kind of the 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 what what I get excited by with other entrepreneurs that I invest in or, or coach is kind of the 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 and, and maybe this even goes to the tattoo thing we were talking about earlier, but it's like the people that are a little less kind of recognized um, or appreciated because of any number of reasons that are actually really important 
and have a ton of potential and are making a massive difference. You know, I, I still think, and Jim's going to also come on the podcast, but I, I don't think people really appreciate the value that Jim and, and, and Sherman and, and others, yourself included, really, and I've talked about this, you know, publicly, probably not on the podcast, but like th- this is a, like a, the way I look at Franklinton now is it, it on the surface at, at a minimum, and, and, and most people probably don't even understand this, it's a massive economic development tool for the entire city, maybe the region, right? And without Jim Sweeney, that doesn't happen, you know? And so, you know, what, what we're trying to do is create a, an environment that embodies that, that the, the, you know, kind of less visible, the less recognized, the, the brilliance, the creativity, the, the makers have a home, and are are lifted up and that the Nancys and Christophers of the world can say like we got you and and to me that's i would put the idea foundry in that category you know that that there's a there's a land planner John Marsh um, who's kind of a little bit famous in the in that little world but but he talks about the seed and how important when you build a town a city a neighborhood the development the seed is really critical that once you plant the seed that everybody wants to start to kind of, you know, get curious about or be a part of or collaborate with, then the rest comes pretty easy. And I think the Idea Foundry in many ways, you know, maybe along with 400 Rich and a few other, you know, pioneers, you know, Lance Robbins and others, the Independence Day Festival was that for me. That was the seed that got me here you know, the Idea Foundry, no doubt, is one massive seed in this neighborhood. And anyway, I just wanted to kind of recognize that and maybe, you know, hear your thoughts about it. Yeah, no, I deeply appreciate that. And and I do think there are these unsung heroes who are the interstitial social glue that, that hold things together and create things. Jim Sweeney, Nancy Kramer, Christopher Celeste. I would add Brett Coffin to that list too. And there, with respect to the value of art as an economic driver, there was a group called Art Place America, which was a national placemaking nonprofit that got several million dollars from several large uh, companies. The objective was to give out grants to burgeoning groups that were supporting the arts, and they have an excellent slide deck that demonstrates the follow-on economic impact that comes from having arts festivals, from supporting the arts. And they like to say, look, this is more than just about, you know, to put it pejoratively, making things look pretty. Like, this is why people want to live in your city. (laughs) Get that. And if you do this well, everything else falls into place. And it was fascinating to hear the science behind placemaking. And this is something that Jim Sweeney has told me a bit about. Michael Wilkos from Columbus Foundation at United Way also has some really amazing insights here. And things that I used to think happened organically or naturally Oh, if you're strategic and if you're empathic and if you're smart about things, that seed can have can be watered, can be fertilized, and can can really have more impact than just one which you, you throw and hope takes root. And yeah, yeah. And and with respect to 400 too, I know Jim Sweeney likes to say the, the artists are the the people who will move into the rough neighborhood first, and so they they're and, and they make it a place people want to be. So we get some credit for helping change the perception of Franklin, but really 400 West Rich, I think was, I, I joke, they were the Arctic icebreaker that was really carving the path 
we were the the carnival cruise ship that kind of came up in its wake after the city had relaxed some zoning so that you could do some complicated fun stuff they had really opened up the door to the neighborhood my first experience in franklinton was urban scrawl so a lot of fun mm-hmm. yeah yeah those those events still to this day i think are really important to continuing to make Franklinton, what that seed was, right? That, you know, the artists continue to have a home and be elevated and not gentrify and not do all the things that typically happen after the artist lands somewhere. And um, it's a challenge, but that is certainly, you know, our um, hope is that, you know, the idea foundry and 400 and all the galleries and, and, you know, the homes for creators, you know, still are right here in this neighborhood. And and maybe that's a good segue, you know, publicized and and I don't know how much the audience knows, but we recently purchased the building and are really excited to be collaborating with you on building out this collective vision. And and maybe you could just speak a little bit about kind of where you see things going, kind of current state of affairs and and what you're energized to be adding to the to the foundry. And, and also, you know, I, I'm um, kind of curious just to hear your thoughts on kind of the tie back to what um, got you excited when you went to visit your sister. Because I know we've talked about that a little bit. And, you know, there's there's some ideas that that still becomes a reality here in Columbus and, you know, as a, in collaboration with Gravity. Yeah. Yeah. No, couldn't be prouder to be a part of the, uh, the Gravity and the, and the Kaufman development family. I'm quoting someone else. No business model survives contact with reality. So you can have an expectation about how this is going to work and then just try and adapt or die and, and go with the flow. So we were grateful for, for Christopher and Kramer, the the metaphor I gave one of the journalists who asked about our partnership, Christopher and Kramer really put us on the launch pad and launched the rocket. And I think a coffin development, gravity are now the booster that's kind of taking us into orbit. And I couldn't be more excited about that. And it's been a really interesting journey. 14 years running the foundry, made a lot of mistakes, have found a few successes. And now that I help other cities start innovation neighborhoods, it's really interesting seeing what works there and trying to take some of those lessons here and vice versa. And some of the lessons that I learned from my sister Layla's place called the Vermont Studio Center in Vermont was that they had an old lumber mill, a hundred year old lumber mill that a nonprofit arts group had bought and built out 30 apartments in the lumber mill. They had a four star kitchen, they have a chef on staff and every month, 29 artists can pay a fee from around the world, Japan, Brazil, South Korea, Europe, every state in the U.S., come and spend a month and live there. And they give that 30th apartment to some renowned artists to come and live and just be an artist in residence, have some open office hours, give a couple of seminars, give a couple of lectures. And something that's been lacking at the Idea Foundry is that residential component. Mm-hmm. So we, we're, you could consider us a, a commuter school, or commuter college, where people drive here, they do their stuff. Some people have a studio, some people have an office. But something I really enjoyed about the Vermont Studio Center, I really enjoyed about Milo Arts, is it is wholly immersive. You're living in that community. And Mm -hmm. for sure, you get work done during the eight-hour day. The real connections happen after hours. Coffee, bar, campfire, dinner. And that's where I'm extremely excited to explore a residential component of gravity, whether it's dormitory for entrepreneurs and you're co-living spaces or artists or entrepreneur or technologists and residents 
Now we can open the door to the nation or the world and say, if you're a professor of art, spend your sabbatical here. If you're a startup, come live here. And I don't think anyone else in the nation or the world is doing that. And that is really exciting. Yeah, for us too. And and directly across the street is where we'll have our co-living. And, you know, I'm just sitting here, you know, we've talked about this, but you know, imagining that in a co-living environment, you know, you can give bedrooms to individual artists, right? Who then are sharing space and, you know, meeting each other and maybe collaborating from there. One of the one of the things that I am really energized by is collaboration. And, you know, we're we're collaborating, but I'm also, you know, excited about how we can be a vessel for other people to collaborate. You know, it's a big part of this community is that and in and, and your community at the foundry especially that you learn from each other, that you might end up, you know, working together or dating or whatever, right? We've seen it all, you know, and just bringing people together and um, seeing what happens is, is, is a creation by itself. You know, I was thinking earlier when you were talking about, you know, kind of how your work has shifted to, you know, being the concierge or, right, the kind of, you know, person that's keeping it all together as opposed to the person that was making something, you know, really focused on an individual, you know, product. Well, this is your product. You know, you are making something and you are making something that's, got pretty massive scale, I, I think, not just, you know, in the numbers of bodies, but like what happens from there? Because people were a part of your community. They meet somebody, they start something, they go somewhere else to another city, another part of the town, whatever. I mean, it has the ability to really make massive impact. It already has. And, you know, I'm yeah, excited to see where things go from here. You know, uh, again, I appreciate all that too. And to to bring it full circle to your first comment earlier about the metaverse too. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll ask the skeptics who are listening and watching to, to hold your skepticism for a second. With respect to collaboration and with respect to innovation, I think that the, the low-hanging fruit of innovation has essentially been plucked. The simple things to make have been made. More complicated things which will bring value to us it's very hard for one person to have all that talent. So collaboration is increasingly important. And I wrote a chapter in a book on collaboration by Roman Holowinski, math professor at OSU and founder of Steam Factory at 400, about the value of collaboration. And there's a really great book called Where Do Good Ideas Come From? And very well researched. And they studied people who had won Nobel Prizes in the medical industry. Ask them, where did your inspiration come from? And some of them would say, oh, I was looking under the microscope and I suddenly saw something, or I had a dream and it inspired me. Then these same researchers got permission to put cameras in the medical research hospital for two years and studied where do breakthroughs come from. And it turns out people are very bad self-reporters of their own behavior. And those, whether it's what did I eat last week, I don't remember, did I get the sleep I wanted, I don't know. These medical Nobel Prize winners were also wrong about where the innovation came from. It came from the weekly roundtable one-hour meetings in the conference room where they would show their results and say, you know, this is a little bit funny. I don't really understand it. And someone else with a different background might say, oh, have you thought about this? Or, oh, I recognize this in my lab. So the actual breakthroughs come from showing your idea or explaining your vision or your challenge to people with different backgrounds than you and hearing them and then sharing. So, And one of my favorite stories at the foundry was a gentleman who had a, a product and he was having trouble designing it. And he's in the National Guard, you know, great guy. But he said, 
I'm friends with people I would never have met were it not for the foundry. Uh, mm-hmm. So he's friends with the, the the eccentric stained glass lady who mm-hmm. helped do his logo. She would describe herself that way. The, the quirky 3D printing geek, Ethan, you would describe yourself that way too, who helped prototype some stuff. And I'm enormously proud that you have a place where people can congregate and collaborate in a way that brings value. The way we're bringing this all the way around the world, I think there are still bottlenecks and challenges and obstacles to physically getting together under one roof, sharing your ideas. You can do it in a round table TED style talk or speed dating. I do think the metaverse, virtual apps really deeply lower some of these obstacles and make it much, much easier for people to communicate their visually and to connect it with people who are pay it forward folks with talent who say, if you have a problem, let me add it. Yeah. And so I am extremely enthusiastic about how new ways for people to collaborate, including the metaverse, or use that as a placeholder for whatever digital virtual collab platform mm-hmm. we have, will catalyze, unlock, and, and amplify the innovation of a neighborhood. Yeah. Okay. So, so agree with you about the metaverse entirely. In fact, I just got done, well, I finished a sabbatical at the end of January. And, you know, one of my big kind of learnings during that period, which was totally surprising and not something I was expecting at all, was really, you know, I've known about VR and, you know, AR and crypto for a long time. I've been immersed in communities where futurists and longevity experts and, you know, these, these conversations have been going on for many years for me that I've, you know, been learning about this. But in recent months and in the last year, it's kind of occurred to me that this isn't about tech and kind of, at least in the way that I was experiencing tech. Right, like oh, all these kind of cool gadgets are going to be out there, and it's going to be like fun, or you'll be able to do cool things. You know, I don't know. Like, you know, we've experienced with social media, or you know, Venmo, or whatever, Uber, right? Like, you know, Amazon, Instacart. Like, okay, it's cool. You know, there's conveniences, there's certain luxuries, there's some certain things tech's doing. My big aha recently on the metaverse is is kind of what I think you were getting at, which is that it's, I I believe, and this might sound a little bit kind of, you know, woo-woo, but I actually believe that the tech is like a divine tool. That that in fact, you know, if you really want to get, you know, kind of woo-woo with it, which is just what I believe, that I actually think these technologies are coming to us because we're not able to solve the problems that need to be solved on our own. And, and, and whether you believe they're coming to us or that they just have this potential, I personally believe that these um, tools, these technologies, really do have the power to solve big problems that have not been solved. And I'm talking about like equality, like DE&I stuff. I'm talking about like, you know, having everybody win you know, flattening the curve, you know, deconstructing the power systems that have been, you know, problematic for, for our entire lives, for generations. And, and, and that might sound, you know, aspirational or too hopeful or idealistic, but like I actually believe that human beings in combination with the, the right tools can still solve these problems and make the world the place that we 
truly want to live, right? Not just about like, you know, the environments we want, but like really like, you know, I think we can get there. And, and you know, it's funny, we just had this conversation as a family with my kids because, you know, they've grown up with tech and in many ways they see its, its potential and its positives, but they also are really in tune with the negatives. And there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of concern, and there's a lot of worry, and there's a lot of negative consequences with this tech too. No doubt about it. We've seen it, and it's real. But maybe it's just because I'm an optimistic person. Maybe it's just because I'm, you know, getting immersed in this in this world. But I'm I'm just super hopeful about the potential. And so I don't know. Maybe you can just talk a little bit more about kind of you know metaverse or or that you know piece of it. Yeah, no, I, I think I catch what you're throwing, and I'm going to use some words that might not normally be used in this context. But if if there is a brand to technology, if technology has a brand, I think it can be hijacked by gimmicky widgets. So people think technology is the latest health fitness monitor, which mm-hmm. helps, you know, half percent of the planet, probably probably not even that much. Or technology was responsible for, let's go back half a century or a century, pollution, weapons of war, every, you know, tech disaster you can think of. So for sure, there is, you know, that that brand can be contaminated by either the dangers associated with it, or at best, it's kind of cute and gimmicky. But but there are real, as you say, social value impacts brought on by technology. And it's not just things like medicine. You can imagine a world where AI, and again, there's a there are some brand concerns around that, AI, robotics, automation. Let's let's pretend all of the all of our construction, all of our farming, all of our mining, all of our garment production production, the transportation is is all done for us. And it's done in a way that hasn't displaced jobs but has elevated people to to live their best lives. So instead of hey, you're born, you didn't ask to be born. If you're lucky, you're sentenced to 20 years of school and then 50 years of labor to keep food in your belly and a roof over your head. That's if you're lucky. As opposed to that, I can imagine a world this is harkening back to that science fiction kid who was inspired by all those AC Clark books. Welcome to the party. We've figured it out for you. Don't have to worry about food. Don't have to worry about shelter. Don't have to worry about this or that. These things will do that for you. It's not even universal basic income. It's that we have optimized production of nearly everything. And when you do that, it is a strange pill to swallow because it sounds like it's putting people out of work. No, people don't have to work. And and it's kind of the Star Trek kind of thing. And it's very hard to imagine that kind of world. Technologically, I don't think there's anything that prohibits from doing that. It is much more those power structures, the people who might be threatened by that, uh, a tough decade or century of transition. And people might think it's a century. It might be closer to a decade. Things are Mm -hmm. going faster. So I do think that technology is more than just a different career sector like uh, service, retail, what have you. It's, It's something that gives humans more potential to do what we're doing currently, but better, more efficiently or to allow us to do things we can't do now. And if you do that responsibly, socially, strategically, empathically, that is the answer to solving misery. Now, throw in human dynamics, that, that's a much tougher problem to solve. So mm-hmm. I went into engineering because I, I wanted solvable problems. My brother went into international relations. I think those are much harder problems to solve. So. Mm-hmm. And what has been fascinating for me over the last 14, 15 years of being involved in the Idea Foundry and helping people 
take their products to reality and then to market, often the production of the product is, they think, the hard part. Mm-hmm. Now I realize that's relatively easy. Nothing's easy, but mm-hmm. it's easier than selling it, convincing people that it's a value, mm-hmm. communicating, getting people's heads. And this is where I think the metaverse, and we'll, we'll define what metaverse means, it, it not necessarily exclusively the Facebook product, but any way that we can augment communication to people across distances and with visuals and media, whatever makes communication easier, I think will connect people who can bring much more value together than if they were siloed and they wouldn't have been connected otherwise. And a, a quick 10-second sidebar, the Cleveland Clinic produces some of the best medical health care in the world because they have, as I understand it, separated personal incentive from prescription. So if you go to a surgeon, surgeons are typically paid, typically paid per surgery. So they will prescribe you surgery. I had a, a shoulder issue. Surgeon said, oh, we'll fix you up. I went to the physical therapist. They're paid hourly. They said, hey, yeah, just do the PT. You'll be fine. So each of them gave me two different answers. Cleveland Clinic puts everyone on salary. So if a patient presents, the internist, the nutritionist, the psychiatrist, the, the, the PT person, they all listen to what the patient needs. And because they don't actually have a dog in the fight, the best solution comes to rise. I think we can see an analogous system for people who have a challenge, whether it's bringing an idea to reality, bringing that idea to market, solving a social issue. Imagine if every neighborhood of every city had a, a way to communicate to the people who have already raised their hand saying, I'm a pay-it-forward person, I might have some value to contribute, let me at your problem. Now, right now, maybe you get lucky if you have a coffee shop or a bar of people who, who like to do that, or makerspace or folks hang out or a co-working space. But you can engage maybe a dozen or a hundred people in those places. You can engage thousands if you lower the barrier to connection. And that's something I'm deeply interested about. And we're actually pitching. We have a virtual app at the Idea Foundry that we're inviting all members of Gravity to for exactly this reason, so that we can put more brains on target, we can communicate more challenges, and invite more socially forward innovators to say, hey, have you tried this? And yeah. that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, it is exciting. And you know, it feels, you know, kind of almost endless in its potential, right? And you know, what I'm excited about, you know, is, you know, I believe this virtual world. And right, we're not talking about Facebook, we're talking about, you know, a virtual world and worlds has the ability to eliminate a lot of the friction that exists in kind of the real world. From my standpoint as a developer, it's as a real estate developer, it's it's way easier for us to get something approved, right? You, you don't actually even need an approval. You can decide how tall it is, what color it is. You can decide how much you want to charge. You don't have to worry about, you know, investors and and, you know, politicians and you know all of these you know kind of obstacles that go into the time the labor the material cost and then if you kind of extrapolate that down to entrepreneur who has to think about space and um, we see it all the time. People don't want to spend money on building out the space because they don't have it. It takes time. It takes money. It takes architects, permits, et cetera, et cetera. So if you want to go into business, which we already have this, I think a lot of people don't really understand kind of to the extent that we're already in this world. But like, you know, you can create content on your phone. You can 
buy an Instagram ad. You can just, you know, put up a YouTube video and you are in business. You know, we are already giving people. I actually always get a kick out of like, you know, my, you know, another generation, you know, behind us or, or, or before us that'll sometimes say like, I can't believe that. And even people in our own generation will say, you know, I can't believe that, you know, that guy's making all this money. You know, like, who are the Kardashians? What are they really? You know, the, you know, Logan Paul, you know, how did he, right? He's just a YouTuber. He's, no, these people are in business and they are providing like an enormous amount of value to somebody, right? And, whether you like it or not, you know, there's a massive audience and they've created massive businesses around just being themselves. What what I what I'm excited about kind of back to the, you know, the, the my original thought on the metaverse is that, you know, this is giving people opportunities that never had opportunities before. And in the gravity metaverse that we're early stage creating, I'm excited by the idea that we can give a headset to somebody in Linden or in a impoverished neighborhood somewhere anywhere in the world really and that same person can be meditating on a beach next to somebody from you know Beverly Hills or Bexley or wherever right and it doesn't matter where you are in reality what color your skin is what how much money you have who you know you're in the same spot doing the same thing and you might end up becoming friends and supporting each other in a way that you never would have had an opportunity to do before. And so anyway, I could go on for a long time on this subject, but I knew you were, you know, in that world too and just thought it would make sense for us to scratch the surface a little bit. Yeah, and it's fascinating. I didn't know that was a direction you were going and it's actually very funny to think of a real estate developer and I love the word real is in real estate, mm. is thinking virtually. And I might actually think that's that's undercutting what you sell, but you're saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm empowered. And you're making me think of the, the Ready Player One universe where yeah. anyone can look like anything. And I love that that was based in Columbus, Ohio. Too. Yes. So I, yeah. I think uh, there's a whole lot of excitement going ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the real world still matters, you know, so those people that are worried that that won't matter anymore. I mean, it's still going to matter. There's um, probably not going to be a real substitute for being in the ocean or skiing a mountain. But a virtual one might work for a lot of people who aren't able to do that, or even those that can, but you know, maybe live in a place like Columbus where nature doesn't exist in the same way. I mean, you know, the combination of the physical and virtual, I do think is going to be really a big part of our business and you know the world that we all live in. Yeah, completely agree. And we at the Idea Foundry regularly host events, either you know, public, open house, or private team building, where we'll use virtual reality headsets and you'll sculpt in 3D, for example. So if you think you have an idea that you want to take to market, oh, I need to learn drafting and CAD and computer design, or I need to pay a designer to do this, now for a $300 Oculus Quest wireless headset and a $10 app, and these prices will come down in the next few years, if you have a mental image of what you want to create, you hold the controllers and you sculpt it in virtual thin air. And if you can do it well enough, you then print it and you're holding it. And if, if you do it close, then you do give it to a designer who can quickly true up the 90 degrees and smooth it out. So the point is, the barriers to realizing what you can think of 
are in a very real way plummeting. Mm. And, and that's something mm. that, that motivates and inspires us too. And, and it's cool. It's fun. It's fun. It, it's exciting. And fun matters. Um, <laughs> all right, Alex, we're going to run out of time. Final thoughts. Couldn't be more excited to keep exploring offline your vision and seeing how we can work together to bring this to reality, not just for Idea Foundry members, Gravity members, the neighborhood of Franklin and the city of Columbus, but to demonstrate a potentially scalable, intentional community that is empowered with resources to really make a difference and and serve as a model for the rest of the world. And that's not just lip service. I think that's true. Yeah, I, I think that's why we're both excited about working together and, and being together on this journey because I think we share that vision. So awesome to have you on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time. Love the conversation. Lots more to be continued. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for everything that you're doing. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 